0: The following message is from the 2017 IBCD Ministry Weekend with Zach S. Wine. So, I'm turning to 2 Corinthians chapter 7, and uh, as I'm turning there, I'm thinking about the moment in which our Lord Jesus was in anguish at the Garden of Gethsemane, and he uh, sought the companionship of his friends, and he found them sleeping. And Luke tells us the reason that they were sleeping. And uh, that reason is that they were exhausted because of sorrow. (laughs) Luke chapter 22, verse 45, they were exhausted because of sorrow. And uh, think about that as we come into Paul's words here in 2 Corinthians 7. He's telling us about being downcast. And Part of the difficulty of finding rest is our ambitions, which we hinted at in our first session, and our uh, resistance or lack of awareness of a covenant rhythm, the Genesis rhythm that's given to us by the good shepherd who makes us lie down, and how that is to impact who we are and how we do a day and our way of being in the world as a people of God. But another thing that keeps rest from us is just a convergence, a convergence of life. And that's happening here in 2 Corinthians. The Apostle Paul is telling us about that. Hear these words, verse 5. Even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn fightings without, fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you, as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more. Let's pray together. Lord, here we are, and we ask that your Spirit, by and with this word, would show us the Jesus Paul loved, that you would reveal yourself to us, and that you would begin to teach us the communion of this inseparable union of love that you've given us, and the ways that you bring rest, pockets of true rest. We ask it in your name. Amen. Now, to begin with, uh, let's notice the transparency of the apostle. If you were to say, uh, hey, Paul, you know, how are you doing today? He would say, well, I'm wore out, I'm exhausted, I'm afflicted and afraid, I feel threatened, I don't know it's how, how it's all going to work out. How are you doing? What's it like to encounter a leader in ministry like that? Does it make you afraid? Does it draw you? What's it like for you to think of yourself as a person? Could you talk like this? Is there, is there someone in your life that you can say without qualification, I'm exhausted. I'm afflicted at every turn. Fears within, fightings without, I have no rest. And I I mean say that like Paul would have said that to Titus and like he's saying it to this church and to us. To say it without all the God qualifications. I'm afflicted. Well, I mean, I know God's real and I know he's my portion. I'm just afraid. I mean, I know I can cast my cares upon the Lord, so I'm not saying I'm And just constantly doing PR, making sure the person listening to us knows we're still faithful to the Lord. And what does that tell us about the cultural climate of congregational life? That you would have to do PR if you talked like this to make sure people knew that you were actually faithful when in fact what the scripture is showing us is what faithfulness talks like. There is no breach between the apostle Paul's presentation of his gifts and his person like there was in my life and like there are in many of our lives. He's Speaking to us. Secondly, notice not only is transparency as a leader and what that teaches us about sane speech, but notice also he's a leader. He's he's an apostle, and so some of us think that when when you're godly, you won't talk like this. And what we're seeing is that that's the opposite. Even even the most Godly, right? The most earnest, the the most faithful, even an apostle has no immunity under the sun. He too experiences the limits of being human and the fragility of a fallen world so that even in ministry... Doing great things for God. He's sad. He uses the word downcast. It's pressured. Where do these conver- convergence of pressures come that we have to get real about and honestly name? They come from several places. Let's look at them together. First, it's just the idea of being local. You are somewhere. Wherever you go, there you are. In order to do anything, you have to be somewhere. And in verse 5, he says, we came into Macedonia. So that's where he was, in that place. One place at one time. Even if you're... Uh, someone will say, ah, I can be at more places than once. I can tweet, I can, you know, chat, I can whatever. But yeah, but when you tweet, you're in one place in the world, not everywhere. You're still finite. Not God. And uh, local places, Macedonia, uh, local places... Being in a local place can be exciting. I get to say in my first time in San Diego, wow, the last thing I expected was how green everything is. But as I've been talking to some of you who are local to the place, you're letting me know, wow, we didn't expect it to be this green either. You know? Without that local knowledge, I would have gone back home and said, man, San Diego, it's like green. And then people would say, what San Diego did you go to? (laughs) A local place. A local place is a privilege. It's also a challenge. Same people every day. Rhythms of weather. Seasons. A time to mourn. A time to dance. Seasons. A time to be born. A time to die. In a place the way the trees are, the way the birds are, and the way they're not. The joy of being able to go to a beach or the the realization you are hours and hours away and could never do that if you wanted to without a lot of money. All of the differences of being in a place. And here Paul is in one place at one time. And I just want to pause here to say... Uh, uh, You cannot be everywhere at once. And you are never meant to be. You are not meant to repent because you can't be everywhere at once. You must repent because you're trying to be everywhere at once. Because everywhere at once is a word called omnipresence. Omnipresence. And there's only one in the entire universe who possesses that quality, and it isn't you. Think about it. These folks in Corinth are not having access to Paul's personal presence at this moment. They have a letter. He can't be everywhere at once. Neither can you. Locality is just a part of our life. I was on an airplane recently, and a little little boy did not want to be in the seatbelt. Did not want to be in the seatbelt. And uh, the parent kept trying to get the little boy in the seatbelt. It would be good for him to be in the seatbelt, but the little boy feels restricted. Doesn't want that seat in that belt. He wants options, you know. And I think, I am that little boy. There was once a time in my life when I thought, I just want to be a pastor. I dreamt of it. I thought, that would be the greatest thing ever. And then I get to be one. And I don't want a seatbelt. I want to keep my options open. You know And the thing I thought would be so grand, I find myself now looking and peering about throughout my life. It's hard to be in one place at one time, for some of us. And it's worth noting that that brings its own stresses, but it also brings its own graces to us to surrender to the vocation and the place given until the Lord says otherwise. To be at our post, as John Calvin said, is a remedy for anxiety because we don't have to wonder if we should be this place and that place and this place and that place. We have the freedom of contentment to trust that we are where we're meant to be until he clearly says otherwise. One place, one time, some of us, Uh, have exhaustion because and pressure because of the place we're in. Some of us are actually blessed in the place we're in. We're creating our own anxiety, wanting the channel changer. Just check the other channels during a commercial just to make sure we're not missing out on something. And we're like that. And for some of us, we're coming to realize it wouldn't matter where you were, you wouldn't be happy. And the problem is, eventually, you get where you're going. And at that point, we will have to surrender. Maybe we'll make it hard on our kids if we have them. They're telling us we can't drive anymore, and we'll make it hard on them. They'll tell us we need to go into a particular assisted living facility, and we'll make it hard on them because we are not local. Local. are. And that is not a bad thing. Could you imagine uh, Adam coming home in the garden, sets his shovel down, says to Eve, Eve, I got to get out of this place. I mean, Eve, I was made for something more. I mean, this is about the kingdom, Eve. We were made to do great things for God. This garden is too small a place for the greatness of a God like that, Eve. And we've been doing that ever since. The garden was what God gave to them. That was their calling. His pleasure, their good. They're local, not everywhere at once. And... There's a physicality to life. Our bodies had no rest, he says. What's Paul doing with an awareness of his physicality? Why is he so aware of his body? How does he even know that his body has no rest? How does he know that his body's tired? There's some kind of awareness to his physicality. And some of us forget that, that we are, as our theology teaches us, both body and soul. I know there are discussions about spirit but body and soul, body, physical. And we aren't able to escape that. I I have moles and freckles. I have scars on my face from acne too long ago to remember. I see you. And you see me. I've seen my grandfather's nose, and my, grandpa, my, grand, my dad looks just like my grandfather, and I see what's happening to my dad's nose, and I look just like my dad, and I know what's coming. My nose is going to get big, it's already happened. I saw a picture recently, and I was, oh my goodness, it's happening. You're physical, and our bodies had no rest. When you're in ministry with people, you smell things, beautiful and not so pleasant. You touch, you see, you hear. There's a close geography of ministry, it's sensory. When you pray with someone, you do so with coffee breath or donut breath or whatever you had for lunch breath. When you speak of the depths of theology, you read it with reading glasses, even though you didn't need to before you were the age of 44. You are physical. And so this body of his had no rest. You ever said that, felt it? My body has no rest. How do you find rest when there isn't any? My body has no rest. And there's just stress in this local place converging in on this physicality of his life. He is afflicted at every turn, he says. Afflicted at every turn. Get out of the ministry, Paul. <laughs> Sounds hard. Affliction. Some of us are stressed because of our childhoods. We experience traumas in particular ways, and it still haunts us today. Others of us are feeling stressed and I need to tell you it has nothing to do with your childhood. It's just an ordinary Friday and there are things in the broken world that are stressful. He is afflicted. Maybe if he just prayed more. Maybe if he just ate more vegetables. Maybe there's something wrong with Paul, isn't there here? Job's friend. Something's wrong with Paul. He, a, a person of God shouldn't be afflicted at every turn. He just needs more faith. No, not at all. Now I remind you that sometimes it takes more faith to do less Sometimes it takes greater faith to name an affliction honestly and to walk through it locally and to bear up under the pressure that it brings is an act of faith. And what is this affliction? Well, he's criticized, fighting without. He's got this group of people constantly tweeting about him. Everywhere he goes, the Judaizers, everywhere he goes, they're always picking on Paul. It's like they can't let him go. You ever had a person like that in your life? Have you ever been such a person? It's like they can't let him go and just go on with their life. But they're fixed on him, and they are aiming at him to tear him down. Everywhere he goes, a critic, you have critics like that in your family and among friends and congregation and ministry, and you might be a critic like that. Someone else would say, yeah, that person's always trying to tear me down. It's like they can't leave me alone and get on with their life. And Paul says he has critics, and there's fighting without everywhere, always telling him who he should be and what he shouldn't be, What he should say, they don't like his theology. They don't like the way he preaches. They they perceive better theological statements that he should have as Judaizers. He should handle the Old Testament better than he does in their opinion, constantly criticizing. The critic imitates the accuser of the brethren because the Spirit of God is called a convictor of sin, but never, 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 is the Spirit of God called the accuser of the brethren. There's a difference between conviction of sin in the Spirit of God's hands and what it is to be accused mercilessly by our critics. Do you have a critic in your life? Maybe you are your own worst critic fighting without fears within. I'm afraid. Man, Paul just says it. I'm scared. He has a right to be scared. When he says he's scared to death, that's a real possibility for him, death. The kind of uh, pressure that he's undergoing. For some of us, we're blessed. We have a position, we have a salary, We have people who are responding to the word, responding to our counseling, but we're constantly complaining that God isn't something. And we just forget. Paul has no pension. And Paul's actual life is on the line. And he's saying, I'm scared and He's looking to the Lord. The convergence of things that cause us hopelessness, despair, sadness, are legitimate. This is legitimate fear. I understand irrational fear very much in my own life. I'm a fearful person, person of anxieties, person of melancholy. I am Eeyore. We're all going to die. My wife, Jessica, And you'll know what I'm saying when you meet her. She's Tigger. It's the morning. It's a new day. Right? But this is legitimate, sane fear emotional fatigue from external pressures of criticism, situational afflictions. Bodily, he's tired. And all of this has made him sad. So let's just pause there for a moment and say, uh, We get sad. And uh, we have pressures. Some of us imagine more pressures than there are, but all of us have legitimate ones. And there are times in your life when you will say, I'm sad, I'm scared. I'm worn out, I don't have any rest, I can't sleep, and I'm afflicted. And that statement, those statements, will not mean that you have no faith. Those statements will be undergirded by the faith you have to say them. And to know that you are held by the one who undergirds all that stuff and gets through all that stuff Because somehow he says, but God. Now here's the thing. Notice Paul can't fix it all. So number one, he can't be everywhere at once. He's local in a place. Number two, he has afflictions. He has fears that he cannot fix. Notice none of these circumstances change in his life. Something's going to change inside of him, but his circumstances don't change. He, it's not fixed, it doesn't go away. He's going to go to bed that night, and everything is not made right. And so, you were never meant to fix it all. I know you're trying so hard to. That's why some of you are driving other people nuts. They have to walk on eggshells around you. They have to try to figure out how to talk to you because you are constantly trying to fix it. And the thing is, being able to fix it all, being able to have the ability to do that, that, that's described by a word like omnipotent. All-powerful, able to fix anything. And there's only one person in the entire universe that has that quality, and it isn't you, and it isn't me. It's God. You were never meant to repent because you couldn't fix it. You're meant to repent because you've tried to fix it all. And Paul can't fix it. And he doesn't know everything, he doesn't know what's going to happen. That's why he's scared. He doesn't know what's coming around the next corner. He's afflicted at every turn. To know everything is called omniscience. And you and I, as a finite local creature, were never meant to know everything. Stop repenting because you don't know everything. Start repenting because you've been trying to. That is the great temptation when these pressures come, to be like God. Everywhere, fix it all. I know it all. I can manage it. And look at that remarkable, penetrating freedom to deliver you from all that. And just to say i got to tell you, this is a hard, hard, hard season of my life. Just to say it. Because life under the sun is stressful, it involves criticism, it's psychologically, emotionally fatiguing and worrisome. But God, but God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by whisking us away, into a beachside cave where mystically he came down and we ate quinoa. It's not like that. It's just not like that. It's not like that. What's it say? He comforted us by bringing a friend by the coming of Titus. No circumstance changes. He can't be anywhere other than where he is, so he wishes, maybe like the psalmist, he could fly away and be somewhere else. He he can't fix everything in front of him. He's going to have to do a day with these fears and anxieties inside of him that aren't going to subside easily. And the comfort of God comes not by removing all that but by coming in the midst of it like the one who sets a table to sup with us in the presence of our enemies, that one who comes. And he does that by bringing a friend. Oh, what a friendship. This is an unusual friendship. Paul is a Jewish man. He's Saul of Tarsus. Titus is a Greek. He's a Gentile. Oh, I bet people were freaked out about that. There they are drinking coffee together in Starbucks, sharing stories. You see two different racial people acting like they are just the best of friends. Who does that? Jesus, Jesus does that. And I'm just trying to say that number one, Sometimes the rest comes by a pocket of friendship. It's just a conversation. And sometimes that pocket of friendship and fellowship might come in a way you yourself would not have imagined or envisioned. A person might look like a Greek and smell like one too because of the foods you see. I was told by uh, um, some folks overseas that Ameri- uh, white Americans smell like milk. <laughs> and I guess if you think about it, the, uh, something about the amount of dairy that Americans consume. You know how you always think it's just another race that has the smell of their foods? And then you realize, oh, you're ethnic too. So there's Titus and Paul, and God comforts them, and he brings it. And what is it that happens? It's just personal presence, just befriending. Everything else is in turmoil. Everything inside of Paul is in turmoil. But Titus comes, personal presence in the midst of it. Those guys would have uh, 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 done more than handshaking because of their cultural backgrounds. I'm confident of it. And maybe even a holy kiss you know, uh, the first time that uh, someone in the Ukraine came to give me a holy kiss, I, I'm ashamed to say it. it was It was a brother coming right for the lips, and I flinched and turned, you know, and the kiss gave there. It took me a while to embrace what was going on there, and the the fellowship being offered. you know, here's Paul and Titus, and there they are together having a Cobb salad at First Watch restaurant or whatever it is, and they're talking. And in this relational presence, what kind of stories are they sharing? Testimonies. Titus is talking about things no one else in the world is. The Roman government's not interested in these stories. The Essenes are not interested in the stories. They're out, they're out you know, away from the city The Pharisees are not interested in these stories. They're trying to stomp them out. The Sadducees, the elite, who don't believe in the eternal life, don't care about the stories. The zealots don't care about these stories. They're they're stockpiling weapons to to overthrow Rome. No one in the world cares about these stories except those who love Christ and stories about how God is doing some things in the lives of other people gives Paul comfort. Such that, he says, he has joy. <laughs> joy in affliction. When their conversation has ended, maybe it's that, that funeral moment, you know? That moment where we've been crying and crying and crying, and then suddenly someone starts to tell a story about how she loved stray cats and how she took stray cats into her home and how she would go uh, to antique places on the weekends to find old dolls clothes and how she dressed every stray cat she had up in dolls clothes and by then we're all laughing about Pat because we know that's what Pat did and we laugh and we laugh, and we laugh. And then there comes that moment where (sighs) pain. Pain's still there. It's still not fixed. Pat's no longer with us, and I miss him. Yeah? And then a little while longer, we tell another story. Or someone tells a story. This is an analogy to that. Paul and Titus are talking about the Lord's still at work. And Titus is bringing news from another congregation. And he's saying something like, do you remember Hannah? Do you remember Hannah? What what Hannah uh, was going through? And we were praying for her. She, she had an unbelieving husband and uh, trying to figure this out and he works, for, uh, uh, works down the road for the folks in the Herod's court and she's trying to figure out what it's like. And the Lord, can I tell you, Paul, the Lord's answering a prayer. For the first time, her husband is open, just open to hearing about the Savior. You see, there was a time in our life where that was remarkable news. And it still so is. And somehow a Jew and a Gentile are laughing over coffee because God loves Hannah. He's hearing her prayer. And He brings news of, of other folks from the congregation and what God's doing. You know what I'm saying? Sometimes the last thing in the world we want to do when we're pressured is go to church. Have you ever noticed that? We really need to take about a year and work this out. There is something about congregational culture that does not welcome the grieving. We try to fix it. You know? And so sometimes it's the last place we want to go, even if we dearly love our church. We just don't want to go there. Because someone's going to try to fix us. Someone's going to tell us, say something dumb about who knows what. You know, when my, uh, my uh, uh, sister Miriam died of cancer when she was a young teenager. And uh, she loved Tolkien and the Lord of the Rings. And there was a moment, uh, I'm sitting by her, and I'm, I'm so much more aware of myself than I am of her. I'm the uncomfortable one. I'm trying to find something to say. Why was I trying to find something to say? Presence together was enough. Trying to find something to say, and I said, I actually said this, so, have you seen the Lord of the Rings movies? I said that, even though I have full knowledge of the course she has. Orlando Bloom called her on the phone to wish her well in her sickness. And yet, I said a dumb thing. Have you ever done that or experienced that from people? And yet, and yet, sometimes the last thing we want to do is what we most need. We need a friend who will sit with us, share stories with us, cry with us. And in that, Paul says his cup is overflowing in verse 4. There is comfort there in the midst. Sometimes the rest you need isn't the rest you want. Sometimes the rest you want is physical, but it's not coming. Sometimes the rest you want is emotional, but it's not immediate. Sometimes in the midst of a panic attack, if any of you have ever had those, I certainly have and can. They're among the more miserable things you experience because it's a reaction in your body that uh, seems to come from nowhere. And uh, it makes you feel like you're either going to die because you think you're having a heart attack, uh, or you're going to faint, or you're, gonna, or you're actually going crazy, because your body is in flight response, as if there's a trauma that it's trying to get away from, but there's nothing happening in front of you. And you, uh, all you can do, because you aren't going to faint, you're not having a heart attack, you're not going to die, uh, all you can do is weather it. It's like a headache. It has to run its course. And so I focus on something stationary like my ring. I say a one-sentence pilgrim prayer over and over and over. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. You are my shepherd. Because, you see, in moments like that, A one-sentence prayer is about all you can get out. And I sit with a friend, my wife Jessica, and we'll talk about anything and everything. Or I'll call an elder, a dear friend, Ty Sweeterman, and say, Ty, I'm having a panic attack. I just need to talk for a while. Can you just talk about something? And we get through. A friend, presence, story, the comfort of God. We are tempted to avoid this. We're tempted to avoid this befriending and storytelling just as we're tempted to avoid the rhythm of work and rest we talked about in our first session, and ugly prayer and things like that, we're tempted to avoid these means of God. And um, what are we tempted with? And I'd like to take our last 10 minutes thinking a bit about that. One of the things we're tempted with is resignation. We just want to quit. All of us know what that's like. But another surprising temptation is busyness. And because we're often unaware of that, I want to spend a little time on it. Some of us, instead of saying, I'm wore out, I'm exhausted, I'm afraid, I need a friend and some stories about grace, Some of us, instead of that, get busy. We start working harder and more. I don't mean the good work of going out and putting our hands in the soil or something or going out and just doing the next thing. I mean intentionally avoiding the care our soul needs, the comfort our downcast soul needs with busyness. Eugene Peterson has said busyness is the enemy of spirituality. It is essentially laziness. It's a surprising thing that being lazy could mean, uh, getting busy could, we, could mean we're lazy. It means we're lazy toward rest. It means we're lazy toward the means God gives us for the rest that we need. And when that takes place, something called asidia or sloth Sets in. When we think of sloth, we think of not doing anything. But sloth is merely this, not doing the thing that needs to be done. Not doing the thing that needs to be done. Not doing the thing that needs to be done. And if the thing that needs to be done is presence with a friend and stories of grace, and you are busying yourself to avoid it, you and I are slipping into this old temptation called acedia. It is, the, it is the expression of the, the one-talent man in Jesus' parable. There was a person that they gave five talents to, the master went away, doubled those talents. One given three talents, invested, doubled those talents. Remember what the one-talent man said? I hid them because I knew you would be harsh. I knew you weren't to be trusted. I knew you wouldn't be able to handle me. I knew you would ask of me the things you haven't sown in my life. I knew that you would be cruel to me, and so I hid this talent. Some of us are at that spot where in the midst of these pressures, we believe that a person of God should not have these pressures and affliction, and therefore we get angry at that God. And we begin to say to him, this goodness that you've given me, I bury it. Because I know you are not good. Now one of the remarkable things about that is he does not ask the person with one talent to get to work and get to five. We do that with each other. But that isn't the Lord's way. The guy with three isn't... Isn't going to be judged on, oh, he's got to compete with the guy with five. Isn't like that. Do you have three? That's all he's asking. Do you have one? That's all he's asking. So he comes toward you, and he asks you, invites you to the one thing, and the one thing is you need to sit with Titus, and you need to hear stories of my grace, because this is the way I will comfort you. I play the piano by ear, and so I've struggled with piano lessons. And there was a time where I thought I would force myself into piano lessons. It was in college, so I took a piano class. And, uh, but that didn't work. The reason is because there was a whole class. We were all sitting at various keyboards, and I learned I could sit in the back, the very back, and by the time the teacher had gone through each person, I could have learned the song and play it for the teacher. So I thought, I need a personal teacher. So I got a personal teacher, and, um, you know, uh, I, that personal teacher caught on to me, figured me out, and set a very difficult piece of music right in front of me and said, I'd like you to play this next week. Now, all I'd have to do is practice, you see, but I did everything else. I mean, I worked at homework. I, did, I called people that I knew I relationally should have called and I hadn't for a while. I prayed. I had my quiet times all week. I mean, I worked. But I would not do the one thing needed. And uh, when I went in and could not play the piece because I hadn't practiced. Who even knows? I didn't even try. I hadn't practiced. I resorted to tears. If you only knew my story, if you only knew what I'd gone through, you would know why 28 minutes of practice is so hard for me. Some of us, I'm looking right at the thing we need. For some, it's the first session, the rhythm and surrendering to it, the God who makes us lie down. For others, there is none of that to be had. We have to face the fact that we're not omnipotent, we're not omnipresent, we're not omniscient. And the thing we most need is a relationship in a moment of time and a story of grace. And we will do everything else but that. And that is called being lazy, even though we're so busy. Paul the Apostle frees us from that stuff. Thank the Lord that those in leadership like this just tell us their stuff. They tell us about the clay jar so that we can see the treasure that's within them. So may I ask you a question? Is there a person in your life, they're just imperfect, you know? They might say a dumb thing and then have to say they're sorry. But they really care about you. And what would it be like just to have coffee or tea? And um, what would it be like to think about someone other than ourselves? And to hear stories about what God's doing not fortune cookie stories, not take these two scriptures and call me in the morning stories. I just mean in the midst of tears, laughter. So that when the panic attacks come, we have a way through. It's not the way we want it, but it is a given way. So that somehow this guy says, this human being who lived in the first century tells us amid all these pressures and fears, somehow he tasted joy. It's not the, I am joyful joy. It's with tears. I don't know, I'm overwhelmed, but God, how are you making it through what you're going through? I don't know. I... Don't know. All I know is God's with me. Sometimes I don't even know that, but my friend Titus, he reminds me. Sometimes I can't even sing a song on a Sunday morning. I can't sing, Great is Thy Faithfulness. So I just listen to the others who do and who can't. I just figure one of these days, they won't be able to sing it, and maybe I will be, and they'll have to lean on me. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, for these scriptures. We just ask that you would make much of them and enable us to discern you, find you, and be found by you. Thank you for such ordinary means that you give us, that you walk with us. Please comfort your people. In your name, amen. Copyright 2017, IBCD. All rights reserved. More free resources are available at ibcd.org.